You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to scientific literacy, polls show that Americans rank 29th in our understanding of science, below Croatia and Liechtenstein, and public discussions about scientific issues can sometimes take on a hostile tone. Well, you know, Senator Inhofe has a list of 700 climate scientists who say this global warming, they've got problems with the whole theory of global warming. I put it to you. They're not, they're not the, 700 the, climate scientists. There's weathermen and other people in there. There are some climate scientists. The science is not review in. The, it is it's in. Not, no. Stuart, quit saying that. No, the debate is so not in. over, sir. Peer-reviewed studies go to science Scientific magazine, progress Nature doesn't magazine, feel like progress to some people. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Skeptic Check on Are We Alone, our monthly look at critical thinking. New scientific discoveries have often changed our ideas of how things are, leaving us more than unsettled as a result. This has been taking place at least since the Renaissance when Galileo argued that the Earth went around the sun and not the other way around. That idea was not only a fundamental recasting of how things worked, it was blasphemy. And there was no shortage of apprehension during the Enlightenment when scientific progress came to replace religion as a dominant way of understanding nature. And suddenly Newton was asserting that the motion of the heavenly bodies above was governed by one force and one force only, gravity. The development of the atomic bomb during World War II underlined the fact that once you discover something, you can't undiscover it, and that dangerous misuse of technology would always be a tiny fine print disclaimer at the bottom of our contract with progress. Today, for example, scientific discoveries in synthetic biology are poised to change the definition of life itself, and that's unsettling. I mean, what is the real meaning of life if we can design it and create it ourselves in the lab and from scratch? Michael Spector, a writer for The New Yorker, where he covers science and technology with focus on global public health, will not deny that spin-offs from science can have unintended and harmful consequences. Even he is dizzy with the pace of scientific discovery these days and says we should discuss the implications of our research for society. But caution doesn't mean antagonism. We reject out of hand genetically modified foods, deny the evidence of a warming climate, and embrace unproven medical therapies. The result is not inconsequential, as Michael Spector writes in his book, Denialism, How Irrational Thinking Hinders Scientific Progress, Harms the Planet, and Threatens Our Lives. Michael, you present a lot of examples of irrational thinking in your book, but let's begin with one that kind of surprised me, mainly because at first glance it seems so harmless, and that is the embrace of organic produce. Uh, why is it that opting for an organic tomato is an example of harmful, irrational thinking? I don't believe I say that opting for an organic tomato is something that I would consider irrational. I eat organic food. What I consider irrational is the religion of organic food, which is growing and quite virulent in my view. And that religion is opposed to using genetically engineered food. And that is what is irrational and extremely dangerous. Because all our food, including every piece of organic food we've ever put in our mouths, is genetically modified. It's just a question of how the food is modified. Is it modified over 11,000 years of animal and agricultural husbandry, or is it changed in a molecular way, and in a more precise way. And in no way am I suggesting there are no risks to the latter, 
but the idea that somehow this is a fundamental difference or that organics in and of themselves can solve the problems of hunger in this world is just absolutely blind. Well, stepping back from this, this really isn't about whether organics taste better or whether they're better for the local economy or whether they you know, might not have pesticides in them or, or stuff like that. This is, this is part of a larger trend you see. The, the premise of your book seems to be that there's irrational thinking going on there that's fueled by a fear of science. What, what, what does that mean, to fear science? It means to look at information and reject it no matter how overwhelmingly obvious it is as a truth. With food, we reject genetically engineered food often because we don't want corporations to own the seeds or we're wor worried about pesticides. Both of those concerns are extremely legitimate and ought to be concerns. They're not science. People need to separate science from a company. Science isn't a company. It's not a country. It's a method of approaching the world. And increasingly, people are walking away from that method with the vaccines, with using drugs and the incredible addiction we have to vitamins that do no good. These things people do in spite of endless and growing amounts of data that shows that they're of no value. Well, this isn't really a matter of a lifestyle choice in your view, Michael. I mean, this, this is a matter that has great consequence in terms of feeding people in the third world. That a wrong attitude here might have more consequence than whether or not you shop at Whole Foods for organically grown produce. It does. I mean, if you live in Berkeley or New York City and you want to shop in the farmer's market, I do. Fine. We're rich people. We can do what we want. We can afford apples at Whole Foods. A billion people will go to bed hungry tonight in this world. And that number is growing, not shrinking. And in, in 25 years, we're going to need to produce 70% more food than we do now just to feed the world. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, there's two ways to produce more food. You can use more land or you can put more food on the land that you have. If we use more land, we'll destroy even more of the environment that we've been so effective at ruining. That's not the answer, nor is only relying on science. But I do not see how we can possibly solve this crisis, and it is a crisis, without science. So isn't there an element of elitism in here? I mean, it, it seems that the Europeans are in the forefront of objecting to genetically modified foods, and yet nobody's starving in Europe. So, you know, it, it's as if, well, it's not good enough for us to have mass market foods. We want the organically grown stuff, and they're imposing this, this viewpoint on the rest of the world sort of inadvertently. It's not inadvertent. I mean, it's fine. If you live in Geneva and you don't want to eat a tasteless tomato, fine. I don't blame you. I don't want to eat one either. But if you live in Zimbabwe, you might want your tomato to last more than one hour as you try to get it over a rutted or muddy dirt road because most of that food rots. And if you live in sub-Saharan Africa and you're forced to rely on something like cassava, which is just a mess of carbohydrates... Hundreds of millions of people need to eat that food every day. It doesn't have vitamin A. It doesn't have proteins. It doesn't have micronutrients. And scientists around the world are now engineering those things into that foodstuff so that if people are forced to eat them, they'll live and they won't go blind. It's not Swiss chard. It's not eating at Chez Panisse. But for God's sake, how can someone be opposed to that? Well, your critics have said that you're just being somewhat naive, you're too upbeat about synthetic biology, that, that you're ignoring the risks, uh, that, that genetically modified foodstuffs might cross the species barrier and, and infect, as it were, other crops. Are you just being, you know, blind to these criticisms? 
Well, first of all, I don't wonder if those people have read my book or the stuff I've written in The New Yorker because when it comes to synthetic biology, I've said that it probably offers the greatest promise in the history of biology and certainly offers the greatest risks. I'm not blind to them. I'd like us to talk about them in this country, and I'd like us to decide for the first time in ever, really, whether this is something we want to pursue. But the idea that we need to worry, that there's somehow we need to take more precaution, two billion acres of genetically uh, modified food has been planted in the world in the last 25 years. Zero human beings have been shown to be made sick by them. Now, people will say, how do you know that won't happen? I don't. But I, knew, I do know this. If every American swallowed two aspirin right now, 500 of us would be dead by midnight. Should we ban aspirin? Should we not be allowed to go into a car because 55,000 Americans are going to die in it this year? I mean, this is a type of ridiculous assessment of risk that people in America increasingly do. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to us and increasingly to the world. You make this point several times in your book that we seem to have a culture, at least in the West, of risk aversion that has gone to extremes in the case of, of modern science, that, that if a new development might possibly hurt somebody via mechanisms that we don't even know yet, that we should somehow shut it down. What, what has brought this on? Where does this come from? Well, some of it comes from our remarkable, almost unimaginable success. When it comes to vaccines, it should be noted, and often isn't, that vaccines are without any question or debate the most effective and successful public health measure in the history of the world, except for clean water. Nothing else compares. They are responsible for saving and prolonging not hundreds or thousands or millions, but billions of lives. I talked to someone recently who said that she wouldn't vaccinate her child against polio because polio wasn't around. Polio isn't around in Northern California or Connecticut, but it's around on the earth. And the idea that an infected person, not knowing he or she is infected, couldn't get on a plane and land in that place and infect someone who isn't vaccinated is a sort of blind, dreamy, wishful thinking that's going to get some people killed. You are making the case here for denialism in the case of genetically modified foods, uh, vaccines. You just mentioned that. But this is a more widespread phenomenon. Yes, it is. I mean, I think we're seeing that with, you know, we see it on the left. We see it on the right. We're seeing this with uh, climate change. Now, I didn't really write about climate change in my book. I, I wrote about what I consider to be some solutions, and I called it the greatest threat mankind has ever faced. But I didn't write a chapter about it. And the reason I didn't, and I might have been wrong, is the data is so overwhelming. The idea that anyone can sit out there and say that mankind isn't the main contributor to the rise in temperature, it just boggled my mind, and I didn't think I could make a contribution. This scientific denialism, to what extent is this peculiarly an American problem? I, I, there's, it seems to me there's a kind of an anti-science tradition, even an anti-intellectual tradition in the United States. I'm thinking of all those science fiction films I saw as my, in my youth when, you know, it was the scientist that was the problem. Some, you know, giant creature had been defrosted and was attacking uh, New York, and uh, the scientists were getting in the way of the military. They were trying to take it out. There, there seems to be something in our culture that, uh, that resists the egghead. Well, I think that's true, and I wouldn't even just pin it on science. I think we're sort of, um, there's a strain of Americans who are sort of individualist, anti-intellectual folks. And they don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be told how a vaccine needs to be put into their body. They don't want to be told that we can alter cells and make new organisms. And 
by the way, I don't totally blame them. We're getting into some areas of science right now that are extremely promising and unbelievably scary. And you'd be nuts not to think twice about it. But we ought to think twice and we ought to have the conversation. And if this country has the conversation and says we don't want to create new types of organisms to power our plants and cars because we think the risk is too great, fine. That's a decision people can make, but they're not having the conversation. They're just running away. But is it really a decision that they can just make? Because there isn't uh, too much science literacy in this country, it seems to me. Uh, polls show America ranking below, well, countries that I can't even spell in their ability to comment on science, their knowledge of science. Is it possible that we're not a sophisticated enough society to even understand these issues, let alone make rational decisions? I, know, I actually don't believe that. It is true that we deal with the world in a way that we didn't 100 years ago. 100 years ago, if I was sitting in a room, pretty much everything around me, I would understand what it was and how it was made. I have no clue how I'm sitting in New York right now and talking to you in California. I don't know the physics of that. But it doesn't bother me. I know it works. I know my carburetor works. I don't know how that works either. But when you add it all up and you sit in a world where more and more of what surrounds you are things you don't quite understand... I think you do get this heavy, uncomfortable feeling. But I also think Americans have a lot of common sense. I really do. And we're framing the issues wrong. You know, we build bridges, and bridges sometimes fall down. But people still go across bridges because the risks are relatively minor. And somehow with pharmaceuticals, with food, these things that are very close to our hearts and ought to be, we've taken the attitude that if anything can theoretically possibly go wrong, we need to run away from it. And I think that's something that we can have a conversation with, just like I think we can talk about the organic food issue, because so many people say, oh, as, as you started off the show, you're opposed to organic food. I'm not. I buy it. I eat it. I'm opposed to those people who are unwilling to let science help solve the problems that have made it possible for me to live twice as long as my great-great-grandparents did. Hold on there. We'll have more from Michael Spector about his book, Denialism. But first, what Michael Spector is describing about the public resistance to science can't help but make us wonder what's going on in the brain. We'll find out about that in a moment when we return. We're swimming in denial on The Skeptic Check. Welcome back to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? We'll hear more from Michael Spector about denialism. But first, why are our brains so stubborn when it comes to new facts? We'll turn to Reed Montague. He's the director of the Neuroimaging Lab at Baylor College of Medicine, and he's looked at more than a few brains up close. Reed, we've been listening to Michael Spector talk about the public's resistance to scientific information. What's the reason for this with regard to what's going on in our brain? Well, there are at least two major sources of that. There are a lot of things you could say about why anyone resists new evidence. The first one is that as a, an evolved organism, it's a good idea to resist evidence unless it's really good evidence. So, for example, animals come along, they come prefigured with good representations of their environment, how to go get food, how to avoid danger, how to find mates, how to get a date, how to keep the date, that sort of thing. And unless the evidence is overwhelming, it's often a good thing for the animal to resist the evidence unless it says you should change your behavior in a dramatic way. So you come prefigured with a kind of resistance to new data. Let me give you an example. 
in the movie Jurassic Park, one, two, or three, I don't remember which one it was. I remember the scene, though. Uh, there were a bunch of velociraptors chasing the uh, travelers, right? And they let go of a, lot of, a, of a bomb that lets go of smoke. Okay, a velociraptor hasn't seen a smoke source like that before. Its nervous system sits there and looks at it, and in the movie they all go running away. Why do they do that? They don't know what to do with it. They don't have a model of what that means. And so they don't try to sort of change their model. They just do the biggest thing they can do, is, which is flee. Okay? okay, but those are raptors, and we're humans, and I like to think that our brains are a little bit more evolved than this Yeah, they are a little bit more dinosaur. evolved, but not a lot more evolved. The resistances that you have to new information are deep-seated and are almost certainly implemented by regions of the brain that you share. We share with every organism on the planet. So even though our brains have evolved as these incredible information processors, it's still difficult for us to process new information That's at times. because we come with models of the world in our head. And you take the data in that you have, and you ask, which model of the world that's in my head already does this fit most? If it doesn't fit any of those models, then you have to go through the slow, often painful process of building arduously a new model of, oh, I see, all of a sudden the seasons have shifted, and we're no longer in what was an ice age. So consider people 11,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age, right? You know, there was a time in transition when things sort of had melted back, and almost certainly the seasonal dynamics would change quite a lot. It took a lot of learning. It took a lot of experience. So it takes a lot of experience here. I, I think the second reason that there's resistance has to do with modern problem, and that is the kind of trust game that goes on between the public and the professional scientific community, and the fact that the odd bird people in science that either cheat or kind of massage their data or something like that, they disable the public trust in the process. And the rest of us have to pay the price for that. Now, you're the director of the Human Neuroimaging Lab, which That's means right. <laughs> that you have some modern imaging devices there, so you can actually see what's happening in our brains. I believe one of them is fMRI. That's functional MRI. So, so what's going on in a person's brain? Can you describe it to me? When, when they're confronted with facts that contradict their current belief. The, the first thing that happens when your beliefs about what to expect are met with data that differ with those beliefs is you generate a whole host of error signals. All of a sudden, your brain says, whoa, that was not what I expected. It was different in this way. You should change your behavior this way or that way. And those signals, I call them error signals here, those are the things that start learning. In other words, those are the things that guide the subsequent learning that you're going to do. But the fact is the models that you had in your head are, in a sense, hard won. And so what we see, and we even see this in the context of a simple imaging experiment where we put somebody in a scanner, give them a task, let them build expectations about how the task is going to go, and then all of a sudden violate those expectations. We can track those learning signals, and the learning really is conservative. Now, I read uh, with some fascination about this area of the brain just behind the forehead called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And it has a role in actually suppressing these ideas that don't square with our preconceptions. Is that right? The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is an area quite sort of expanded in human beings compared to other species. And it's involved in deliberative choice. And by that, I mean choices where you take in information, you deliberate over it, the way you sort of to think of it in the terms of the time scales that you consciously think. Use that information and either veto some behavior or take some other behavior. What happens as you do that over and over again? The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is coming online. It's helping you control your behavior. It's giving you sort of cognitive control over your behavior. 
if you keep repeating that, all of a sudden that'll go offline or it won't be involved as much as it was before and it hands it off to a system called a habit learning system. So in your brain, there's a process that's always going on that goes from the deliberative, using and deliberating on information that's coming in, and it hands it off to a habit learning process where it's streamlined and it's like a, a reflex almost. So when new information comes in, it goes against what is your learned habit. That's right. And the more it is a habit, the harder it is to change it. So the apparent sluggishness of learning, like a potter's kick wheel, to use an analogy, it sort of makes sense from an information processing point of view. Uh, the inertia that not changing your learning implies, that's hard one. In other words, you have had a lot of experience, and so you really shouldn't change this model unless you have a lot of evidence. Now, you're alerted by new information. In other words, you, you orient to it. But whether you change your internal models of the world and whether you change your models of somebody else or what you should do in a certain situation, those are much slower. So obviously we cannot pay attention to every bit of data that comes our way and give it equal weight. So what you're saying is that there's this balancing game between these reliable theories, our own reliable theories about the world, and holding on to them and bringing in this new information that contradicts them. That's right. In my world, in the world of cognitive neuroscience, this is called the exploration-exploitation trade-off. And the idea is this. An animal has to explore the world to build a model of the world. Okay? So he's exploring in order to gather information to get a better model of where is food, where is danger, where are good things. Exploitation means now you use that model and exploit it. You go harvest things. You go harvest those pleasures, and you go harvest the avoidance of pain and all that sort of thing. And those two things trade off. You can't always be adapting your model of the world and exploiting it at the same time. You have to kind of shift over from one thing to the other. And that's a big problem in our area of cognitive neuroscience, is understanding the brain systems involved in the exploration-exploitation trade-off. And brains do this in every domain. Abstract domains, what do you believe is true, and especially in those cases where information is incomplete, which is virtually any real-world problem. Reed Montague, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks very much for having me. Reed Montague is director of the Human Neuroimaging Lab at Baylor College of Medicine and author of Why Choose This Book, How We Make Decisions. Okay, now that we know what the brain is up to, we return to Seth's conversation with New Yorker writer Michael Spector about our resistance to scientific information and what we can do about it. Michael, how can we combat this denialism? I mean, maybe all it takes is to point out some obvious examples. You've already mentioned measles, smallpox. People, you know, figure, well, smallpox is not much of a threat. The, you know, the, the Black Plague, well, that affected them. It doesn't affect us. I don't need to get the measles vaccine for my kids. I wish that it was as simple as just pointing out the obvious, but it's not. And people are very worked up about that measles vaccine. And it doesn't matter how much data. And there's an endless amount that shows that there is no relationship with taking a measles vaccine in any illness, particularly autism, which is the biggest fear. I think it requires education. You know, in 1996, if you looked at the school numbers, you'd see we were doing pretty well compared to other countries in the world. We're now kind of where we were 13 years ago. We're flailing about. If you look at China, India, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, the arc is straight up like a rocket shot. Now, the idea that somehow we had technological supremacy 
and therefore we always will have it, is pretty ludicrous on the face of it. And we need to educate people. I don't understand why, I have a teenager. She takes physics and chemistry and all those things and fine. I don't think she's going to be a physicist, but what I really wish she would take is a simple statistics class, just something that would let her understand that every fraction has a numerator and a denominator. And if you say, oh my God, that vaccine killed someone, you ought to also be able to say, that vaccine did kill someone, but it was one out of 63 million people who received the vaccine. You know, it reminds me a little bit of my uh, debates with the UFO community. You know, at, at what point do you say, look, uh, is this helpful or not helpful? I think that the biologists have the same problem. If they're, you know, should they go into the fray? Should they actually be in public debates with the intelligent design people or not? Does it help? Does it hurt? It remains a perennial question. I don't know that there's a simple answer. I, I, there isn't a simple answer. I do think one answer, though, is to be clearer about our goals. You know, when I talk about organic food and I talk about people starving in Africa and I say, no, this won't solve all the problems, but here's how it can solve some, a lot of people respond well to that. I don't think most people who care about organic food in this country don't want to see Africans prosper and survive. It's just that we don't think about it very much. When you talk about vaccines, Sometimes we are condescending. We need to remember that vaccines can always be safer. We should do the studies and we should explain the studies. And it doesn't do any good to tell a distraught parent, listen, I've done all this research, go away. And so often that has happened. But nonetheless, at some point you have to look at the data and believe in the data. Because if you don't do that, then you're believing in magic. Speaking of magic, you mentioned, in fact, Alternative medicine there, somewhat obliquely. Alternative medicine, just the terminology, it sounds like it's medicine, and it sounds like, well, here's another choice. You know, you can choose curtain one or curtain two. Uh, how do you feel about alternative medicine? I think alternative medicine is one of the greatest frauds perpetrated on the American people. If medicine works, if it treats or cures something, if it's shown to do that reliably and observably and repeatedly, it's not alternative. It's medicine. So the idea that, you know, we need to worry about magnets or special fields because it makes people feel good. These studies, we have an entire institute of the National Institutes of Health devoted to this stuff. They've never come up with one single alternative method of treating someone that's better than what science has been able to produce. I mean, this is just hokum. And people often say, Hey, if I want to take a bunch of vitamins, it's up to me. And it is up to you, and you'll always be able to do that. But don't think it doesn't matter. Because if you think it doesn't matter, look at South Africa. Because that is a country where the president, the former president, decided that it would be better to treat his citizens with garlic and lemon oil than the antiviral medicine that actually treats HIV. They have the worst epidemic in the world, and he killed hundreds of thousands of his people just by doing that. So never think that these things are victimless crimes. They kill people. I, I believe they've changed their policy recently. Not only have they changed their policy, it's a triumph, because people always say, can denialism be defeated? The current president stood up about a month ago, and he said, we have to get over denialism. We have to get drugs to our people. And, you know, I have a lot of friends in South Africa. They were dancing in the streets. And I... It was a very emotional moment. I wish it had come a decade ago, but it came. And so the idea that, that rationality and science can't win out has been shown to be wrong. And thank God for that. Finally, Michael, clearly denialism can kill. 
So how do we combat that in our everyday lives? As the host of a science program, I'm more than interested, and I've found that it's very hard to persuade those who are set in their beliefs, the hard-over people on the, the other side of science. I think there's probably always going to be a hardcore minority that just is skeptical. And skepticism, by the way, is the greatest thing we can have. We need to be skeptical. We don't want to just listen to a government, a doctor, a pharmaceutical company tell us what to do. But the way to combat it is to ask questions. Has this study that you think is so great, has it been done for five years or five weeks? Were there 300 people in it or 300,000? Was it a significant difference from whatever we did before or not really? Is it costly? Who's benefiting? Who did the research? These are things we can see. And I think we can have those conversations and we don't have to be scientists to do it. Michael Spector is a writer for The New Yorker and author of Denialism, How Irrational Thinking Hinders Scientific Progress, Harms the Planet, and Threatens Our Lives. You know, Molly, what Michael Spector was saying there about our resistance to believe something that's different from what we already believe, despite accumulating evidence, this also applies to pseudoscience topics. It reminds me of the sort of stuff I see when I uh, hear about crop circles. Crop circles are those patterns that have been appearing mysteriously in the wheat of England or other grains of England. Is that right? Yeah, it's mostly in the wheat and indeed only in a couple of counties of England. But the thing is, these things have been, you know, showing up for decades now. And in the beginning, people thought they might have something to do with extraterrestrials. But, you know, the evidence against that idea has been mounting the entire time. And yet there are still people who believe it. Well, say a little bit about how they appear. Don't they appear overnight? No one else is around. And then the next morning, the farmer goes out to his or her field and there's this gigantic geometric design in the middle of their wheat field. Yeah, very often they appear overnight, in fact, almost invariably, and uh, also at the ends of weekends, it seems. And, of course, a lot of them have been uh, admitted to. In other words, there have been art collectives. Uh, originally, there were two guys, Dave and, and Doug, who came out of a, a pub in England, and they said, look, we did it with boards and ropes. And everybody said, there's no way you could could have made these circles with boards and ropes. Then Do you they, think there's any connection between coming out of a pub in England and tying boards and ropes to your feet and stomping around in a wheat field in the middle of the night? Well, maybe they got a bad steak and kidney pie. It might not have been the ale. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, at first it, it sounded crazy. These are too complicated to be made in such a simple way. And then they showed that they indeed had made them. Well, by this time, people believed that some of these crop circles, if not all of them, were made by aliens, so they didn't like this explanation, even though they were being confronted with evidence that, you know, actually humans could make this thing. So they resisted the explanation that humans could make these crop circles, even though humans came forth and said, we made these crop circles. Yeah, exactly right. And and then, of course, the, Doug and Dave stopped doing it. They went on to who knows what they're doing now, but they, they stopped making crop circles. But the crop circles, of course, kept appearing, and they got more and more complex, which you would think would be good evidence against them being due to aliens. I can hardly imagine the aliens would come hundreds of light years to Earth to make crop circles and then sort of practice and get better at it, you know, after year after year after year. That doesn't make any sense. It sounds like humans were getting better at it, and well, indeed they were. But what about when you say things like these crop circles are always made at night and on the weekends, and they never seem to appear during the day, because why would the aliens care whether or not they're seen doing this? And it always seems to be in England. I mean, are there crop circles in in France, for example, or in the middle of Iowa, or 
any other places around the world that grow grain? Well, there have been a few, but very few. The overwhelming majority of these things seem to be in England. And, and uh, you know, that I, I suppose that's a good question. You're trying to sort of second guess why it is that the aliens prefer a couple of counties in England to the grain anywhere else. But, I, but apparently they do because that's where they appear. The other thing about these crop circles that always strikes me is that it's not very much information in them. They, they tend to be beautiful. They're nice patterns and so forth. But, you know, they don't have a whole lot of info in them. I mean, the aliens, if they're going to carve something, why, why don't they, you know, just carve some stones where they can write some text? I mean, the Rosetta Stone has a lot more information on it than any of these crop circles. You don't think there's a crop circle stone tucked away somewhere that might be yeah, able maybe. to decipher what these crop circles <laughs> well, say? Well, so you, when you present this to the people who believe in crop circles, that they were made by aliens, and you explain all the reasons why they probably weren't made by aliens, what do they say to you? Well, they say they will admit that most of them are, in fact, just art projects by students or, or art collectives. But they'll say, but there, there's good reason to think that some of them, some small fraction of them, are actually due to aliens. And they, they cite people who go into these crop circles with Geiger counters and find some sort of radiation level that they think is anomalous. Or there's, there's been at least one paper published where they say in the crop circles, you know, the way the wheat is bent is something that's not normal for bending wheat and so forth. It wouldn't have been done by boards and ropes. So they, they cite this sort of evidence. They just want to believe it. And, uh, you know, the all the evidence that suggests, you know, this is human activity. They just don't want to don't want to subscribe to that. So is what you're saying is that there's no amount of evidence you can present to the those who believe that aliens are making crop circles that would convince them that aliens are not making crop circles? I, I think that that's actually fair. I think that no matter what you do, there will always be a percentage of people, and it's going to be on the order of a few percent, five percent, ten percent of the population who will say, look, some of these are due to alien activity. Yes, the aliens really have come to Earth to play in next week's breakfast cereal. Coming up, when those who resist the evidence are the scientists themselves. Scientists usually get things wrong at the start, then they have to be set straight. That's how science works. It's Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? And there's more about the show at radio.seti.org. If you reside in an earthquake-prone area or near a volcano, you live with the local consequences of plate tectonics. Since the Earth's crust sits atop a liquid core, pieces of it, called plates, move around, occasionally crashing together in slow-speed collisions with immense force. And it's this constant crustal restlessness that causes earthquakes and fiery magma to erupt through the surface, producing a volcano. Now, today, no one would dispute the theory of plate tectonics and continental drift. And, and yes, it is a theory because that's what we call concepts that explain a wide range of phenomena. But in the 1950s, the 1950s, and that wasn't so long ago, the idea of continents that moved was considered ludicrous. Some scientists said the drifter theoreticians, as they called them, talking about their spreading seafloors and their wandering crustal plates, were not only unrealistic and incoherent, their idea defied all common sense. Continental drift would never survive the scrutiny of serious science, they said. And so the story of plate tectonics joins that of quantum mechanics and global warming as yet another revolutionary idea that scientists at first denied and denied even when the evidence was obvious even to a child, as historian of science Spencer Wirt remembers. I looked like many kids do at the map of Africa and South America, and I thought, oh, gee, maybe these ones fit together. Lots of people thought that. But then you think, well, that's ridiculous, you know. How could that happen? So the natural thought 
And the thought that people had ever since they knew there were continents was that the continents had always been there. So that's the ground state, is to think, how could these things move? Well, okay, but what was the attitude of uh, of geologists, for example, in 1900 or, or 1920 or, or whenever, 100 years ago? Well, sure. Right well into the 20th century, geologists believed the same thing everybody else did, that the continents were stable. And why should they believe otherwise? There were some people who said, well, maybe these things fit together, but nobody could come up with a mechanism. They would make some hand-waving arguments, but then the geologists could make hand-waving arguments, too. They'd say, gee, to move a continent takes a lot of energy, and where would the energy come from? And they did calculations, boy, to make a continent move through all that rock, it just can't happen. There's just not enough energy there. So they had good reasons for thinking that it couldn't happen. Okay, so that was the conventional wisdom then, uh, 100 years ago. If you, if you asked, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10 or maybe 100 geologists, do you think the continents could move? 99 of them would have said no. Yeah, that's correct. They'd say, oh, you know, it's been proven there isn't enough energy there. Not only 100 years ago, 50 years ago, practically, uh, well into the 1950s, most geologists would have said it can't happen. And if you would have said, well, there's this theory, there's this guy Wagoner, he has this evidence that there's rock strata in Africa match the rock strata in South America. So there's something funny going on there, but it just doesn't make sense. That's the way most of the geologists would have uh, said it. Okay, so what changed their mind? I mean, obviously there's been, as it were, a tectonic shift in their thinking. I mean, what did, what did it do? Did Wagner, this guy, this geologist who had another idea, did he buy him off? What happened? Well, what came along was evidence, and the evidence was from people looking into the oceans with new techniques. They discovered these big rifts in the middle of the oceans, and they, by measuring the magnetism on either side of these rifts, they were able to show pretty clearly that the things were moving apart. There were these very strange bands of magnetism, and nobody could come up with any explanation for it except that somehow the things were moving apart in the middle of the ocean. If that happened, then the continents must have been separating. So there's very strong evidence, and a lot of the geologists did not at first want to accept it. They say we need more evidence. Quite typically, it's the older guys who are not willing to accept it, and the young guys who don't have quite as much stake in it, they haven't been teaching students this for the last 50 years, are more willing to take up with this new and surprising and counterintuitive idea. Wasn't there a famous quote about that, that, that phenomenon? Yeah, this came up in, uh, in the quantum mechanics revolution. Quantum mechanics and relativity, for that matter, were things that a lot of physicists could never accept. It seemed to them like some kind of funny philosophy. And Planck, who was the first guy to come up with the idea of the quantum, said that you don't really convince people, just the old guys die off and the younger generation has to come up. <laughs> now, that wasn't entirely true because Planck himself was an older guy. So some of the older guys get convinced. With quantum mechanics, it almost sounded like philosophy. It didn't really sound like physics, the ideas that the people were coming up with. In fact, some of the ideas are still being argued over. And when you're dealing with an idea that has a philosophical basis, something that kind of reaches deep into your views of reality, then it's much harder to change that kind of a view. Yeah, well, that, of course, puts me in mind of the famous quote from Einstein, who said, well, God doesn't roll dice. You know, that, That's right. Einstein was one of the ones who could never really accept what's called the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. Niels Bohr was the guy in Copenhagen. He argued with Einstein all the time. Einstein accepted the equations. He accepted the experiments. He didn't accept the interpretation of it. And in fact, there are still some physicists, some very good physicists, who still don't quite buy the interpretation of it. They needed more experiments.
That, that, that's interesting. I mean, it sounds like if you can't convince Einstein with the, with the experiments, I mean, really, what hope is there? I mean, how, how, can, how can the rest of us know what to believe if a guy like Einstein is doubtful? Well, you have to look at what Einstein was doubtful of. He did not doubt that the equations worked. He did not doubt the experiments. He just doubted some of the philosophical ideas that were behind it, some of the ways you interpret the experiments. So he very much accepted a lot of what was going on. You know, something similar had happened more or less 100 years before plate tectonics, right? I mean, there was this whole argument about whether you could have rocks falling from the sky, right? what we call meteors, of course, and meteorites by the time they hit. Uh, that, that wasn't believed to be possible. You look up at the sky, you don't see any rocks. That's right. Well, again, it's one of these things that was kind of common sense. And the scientists believed along with everybody else. Every now and then a peasant would come along and say, oh, I saw this rock fall from the sky. And everybody would laugh at him and say, well, that's just a peasant. Or even if somebody fairly respectable came along, Thomas Jefferson said once, I'd rather believe that a Yankee was lying than that rocks fall from the sky. (laughs) He was a pretty good scientist, too, and he didn't believe it. Yeah, so what changed it? Well, there was one of these reports from Normandy, that a lot of people have seen a lot of rocks falling from the sky, and the Paris Academy of Sciences poo-pooed it, but there were so many reports, they finally sent somebody to Normandy to look at it. And he said, yeah, here are these rocks, and we have, you know, 20 respectable people, not just dumb peasants, but clergymen and so on, saying that they actually saw these things coming down from the sky. So the evidence turned them around. It's somewhat interesting because, in general, it's said that scientists don't believe. That's, that's not the way they operate. They don't believe. They just look at the data and conclude that this is what's true and that's what's not true. Yeah, but scientists have to start off with something. You can't start off without any ideas at all, and scientists generally start off believing sort of what everybody else believes. There are not rocks in the sky. You know, continents don't move. The sun goes around the Earth. Scientists start off believing sort of what everybody else believes, and then they have to be convinced. You mentioned that last one, of course, this this terracentric theory that everything revolved around the Earth. I, I suppose that was the first of uh, uh, the, the major cases in which, uh, you know, scientists had changed their minds. Yeah, that was, a, of course, the most famous case. Copernicus and Galileo came up with this totally bizarre and screwball and crankish idea that it's the Earth that goes around the sun, not the sun that goes around the Earth. And this was particularly hard for the other intelligent, learned people at the time to accept because it not only contradicted common sense, but it contradicts the Bible and their religion and their feeling about the order of things. And that kind of thing gets particularly hard to overturn. I'm speaking with Spencer Wirt, historian of science. Okay, so it depends on the root system of this conventional wisdom, I suppose. Yeah, the deeper it is and the more different hooks it has into your view of how the world works, the harder it is to overturn. Uh, my, My favorite case is global warming, where, yeah, at the start of the 20th century, which was when the first ideas of global warming came along, Most of the scientists said, you know, that's just not possible. You know, humans are just this sort of little bit of scum on the surface of the Earth. All of life is only about two meters on the surface of the planet. There's these giant geochemical forces. How can humans do anything to affect the climate? The way we're putting carbon dioxide into the air, you know, the oceans will just absorb it. So the carbon dioxide can't build up in the atmosphere. And actually, they were right, because in 1900, it would have taken a thousand years to double the carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere. Now that was then. We're putting it in at 20 times the rate now, so now it only takes 50 years. So those calculations didn't work. So they had kind of good reasons, solid calculations, to prove that at the 1900 rate we weren't going to warm the planet. And it wasn't until the 1950s that people said, wait a minute, you know, we're putting it out at a much faster rate now. The oceans can't absorb it fast enough. It really is going to build up.
And it took a long time and a lot of evidence to convince them. What do you say to people who would argue maybe about global warming or, for example, a creationism versus what's called uh, the theory of evolution? I mean, that, that well, look, scientists can be wrong. I mean, we, we've talked about just a couple of examples here. There are more. Scientists, mm-hmm. scientists can be wrong. Maybe they're wrong about this. Why should I believe you when you tell me that evolution works or that there really is global warming due to human activity? In all of the cases we've talked about, and in fact, in just about any case you can think of, the scientists who were wrong were wrong because they believed kind of what everybody else believed. They just stuck with the common sense ideas, uh, maybe based on philosophy and a worldview that was very acceptable and not scary at all. And the ones who were right were the ones who were saying scary and strange and bizarre things. So if you have to ask which group of scientists is more likely to be right, the ones who believe what you and everybody else believe, or the ones who come up with a lot of evidence for something that's kind of new and strange and scary, better put your money on the new ones. Spencer Wirt, thank you so much for talking with me. Okay, my pleasure. Spencer Wirt directed the Center for History of Physics at the American Institute of Physics. He's now a historian of science, specializing in the history of modern physics and geophysics. Hey, Seth, you want to take a break? You bet, Molly. And what better place to clear your mind than... Check out Line Press. And this is when Molly and I check out the sometimes outrageous stories that we find in the tabloids lining the checkout line at our local supermarket. Okay, here in the... This week's Weekly World News, the tagline, by the way, is the world's only reliable news. And let's see if we can rely on this. The headline is, Dolphins Are Aliens, Seth. And there's a picture here of a dolphin looking at us. Very cute dolphin. The dolphins are aliens, or they they were put here by aliens? Well, let's see. Dateline, Beijing. Let me just quote here. Uh, Dolphins are the descendants of aliens that came to Earth in UFOs 100,000 years ago, a leading researcher reports. Um... You know what? I'm not sure I believe this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fact, he says, I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. We've always known that dolphins were extremely intelligent, but now for the first time we know why. He's a famed marine biologist, by the way. Yeah, well, that's a different theory on why uh, dolphins are intelligent. I mean, they are reputed to be intelligent, and people who study intelligence in animals note that the dolphins have a very high brain weight relative to their body weight, which is usually the sign of intelligence. Uh, How do they compare with humans? Well, it says here that dramatic new studies suggest that some dolphins score actually higher on IQ tests than human beings. Yeah, maybe than some human beings. But in general, you have to say the accomplishment of dolphins uh, hasn't been very great. I mean, you know, I don't see a whole lot of dolphin literature. There's not a whole lot of dolphin technology yet. But Seth, it is true that we know that dolphins and whales, for that matter, are very intelligent. How do we know that they're not highly evolved life forms that came to Earth from another planet? Well, to begin with, you can take one apart. I mean, you'll find that they're built on the inside pretty much like uh, like us. They're mammals, right? Uh, they have skeletons that look like us. They have brains that look pretty much like ours. And by the way, there happen to be skeletons of dolphins that lived, you know, 20, 30, 40 million years ago. So that's a lot longer ago than these things supposedly came to Earth in UFOs. Well, maybe that's just a reliable skeletal plan that's used throughout the universe. You, were the were the dolphins actually piloting the UFOs, I sort of wonder, because, you know, if you look at a dolphin, uh, they're cute and all that, but they can't hold anything very well, can they, except in their beaks, maybe. Uh, you you, know, you, you make a very good point here. It just says that the dolphins have made it clear um, by communicating with this researcher and others, and we'll get to that in a moment, um, that their ancestors came here 100,000 years ago to escape the pollution of their home planet, and their starships have long since 
vanished. So uh, we don't have the evidence of their means of travel to this planet. So we don't have the evidence of um, how the dolphins actually got to this planet and who piloted the ships. That, that strikes me as convenient. Well, it's very interesting, however, if they are aliens, because, of course, we might learn something from them about uh, the nature of alien worlds or alien life. But uh, as I say so far, I mean, all the people that have studied dolphins so far seem to think that uh, there's not much to learn because they're earthlings. They're ah, ah, but this says that you can learn something from them because the leading researcher, and he is a famed marine biologist, by the way, in Beijing, he says that he has been communicating with a pair of these creatures telepathically since last December. So they are communicating with humans so, telepathically. Oh, the dolphins brain can, waves. Well, you know, Polly, I have to tell you, years ago, and when I say years ago, it's on the order of a dozen years ago, I was on a panel at a conference with a fellow by the name of John Lilly, and he was one of the leading dolphin researchers in the world. He was one of the inspirations, in fact, for some of the early SETI experiments. And Lilly was telling the audience that he thought, indeed, that dolphins were communicating with aliens telepathically. And he was turning to me as the, the SETI guy, and he said, could that be? Could it be that the dolphins are communicating telepathically? And I said, look, they're underwater. I mean, even radio waves won't go through salt water. So exactly how does that work? Well, was the idea that the dolphins are communicating with aliens that are here on this planet, nope. perhaps on the shores of our oceans, talking to these dolphins with their brainwaves? Or the aliens are still on their own planet communicating with the dolphins through brainwaves. Exactly. They were communicating long distance. Yeah. And, you know, I tried other arguments. I said, well, now, wait a minute. To communicate with a planet that's a couple hundred light years away would require quite a bit of energy. And so where's that energy coming from? I mean, these dolphins eat pretty well for dolphins, but where's the energy coming from that would allow them to communicate over light years distance? I have to say John Lilly kind of looked at me, and then he looked away from me. John Lilly had, you know, different ideas about about the world than, than I did. Anyhow, he had the uh, formula, the chemical formula for LSD on the cap he was wearing at the time. And I, in fact, have been told subsequently that he actually gave LSD to some of the dolphins, which may have helped them to communicate. Who's to say? Well, there's one thing in this article that I think I don't dispute that I'm not that skeptical about is that the dolphins need humans to find a solution for them because their oceans are becoming more polluted and, and we should do what we can to uh, help these creatures. So you're willing to uh, solve the pollution problem for the dolphins even if they're not extraterrestrial? Even if they're not extraterrestrial. Well, doggone it. I think the tuna will thank you. Well, Molly, I think we ought to get out of here. Oh, wait a minute. Can I purchase this John Travolta bobblehead? Mm-hmm. That'll be twelve ninety nine. Twelve ninety nine for a bobblehead. And that's it for our show. We'd like to thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Sandra Chung, and Jay Weiler for their help. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for life elsewhere in the universe means thinking critically about scientific evidence. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.